السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ نحمد رسول کریم اما بعد فعود بلّہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ربش رحلی صدری ویسرلی امری وحل العقدم السانی یفقہ قولی ربنا زدن علما باب الحیا افل علم الحیا شائنس ان وات فل علم ان نالج شائنس وت ریگارڈ ٹو علم کڈ بی آف ٹو ٹائپس One is that a person feels too shy to ask about something. He's too shy, he's too embarrassed, he's hesitant. He doesn't find the confidence in himself to speak up, to ask, to find out from someone. So as a result, he does not ask. Another type of shyness could be that a person is too shy to respond, to give the answer. That somebody asks, somebody wants to learn, or somebody wants to know. For instance, the teacher is asking the student and the student is hesitant to respond. Or for instance, your friend or somebody is asking you about a particular matter, so you feel shy about talking it, so you say, I don't know, I don't want to talk about it, or you change the topic, you refrain from speaking over there. This is also another kind of shyness when it comes to ilm. Both of these types of shyness, we see that they're not good. They're not good for a person, they're not good for neither the seeker of knowledge nor the giver of knowledge. Both of them. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given ilm to a person, if he does not fully understand something, it is his responsibility that he tries harder and he learns more so that he can fully understand it. And when Allah has given a person knowledge and other people want to know, then shyness should not prevent you from telling them. So both of these types of shyness, they should not be there when it comes to learning or when it comes to teaching. حدثنا محمد بن سلام قال أخبرنا أبو معاوية قال حدثنا هشام عن أبيه عن زينب ابنة أم سلمة So who's narrating this? Zainab ibn the daughter of Umm سلمة Who is Umm سلمة? The wife of the Prophet وسلم. So who is Zainab? Her daughter Her daughter from before Before she married the Prophet وسلم. So she narrated from her mother Umm سلمة From who? عن أم سلمة Qalat, she said, meaning Umm Salama, she said, that Ja'at, she came. Who came? Umm Sulaiman. Umm Sulaim, she was an Ansariya, Sahabiya. So she came ila Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Faqalat, and then she said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, inna allaha, indeed Allah, la yastahyi min al-haq. Indeed Allah does not feel shy of the truth. Allah does not feel shy of the truth. In other words, if there's something that needs to be made clear, Allah is never hesitant to clarify it. So if I need guidance in something, I do not feel shy in asking about it. And then she asked her question, فَهَلْ So is there عَلَى الْمَرْأَةِ Upon the woman مِنْ غُسْلٍ Any غُسْلٍ إِذَا When اِحْتَلَمَتْ When she has اِحْتِلَام Meaning when she has a wet dream. So does a woman have to take a bath if she has a wet dream? Qala Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he replied, إِذَا رَأَتِ الْمَاءِ إِذَا when رَأَتْ She saw الْمَاءِ liquid. Meaning if she finds herself wet upon waking up, then yes, she has to take a bath. So upon this, فَغَطَّتْ So she covered. Who covered? أُمُّ سَلَمَ أُمُّ سَلَمَ تَعْنِي She means the narrator, her daughter Zainab. She meant that Umm Salama, she covered what? Wajhaha, her face. Why? Because she was shocked at the question that was asked and who was asking and who was being asked and the nature of the question, the answer that was given. So she was so embarrassed, she covered her face. 
وقالت and she said يا رسول الله و messenger of Allah وان تحتلم المرأة does a woman even have احتلام can a woman have a wet dream قال the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم replied نعم yes تربت يمينك may your hands be filled with dust فبما يشبهها ولدها فبما so why how come Yushbihuha, he resembles her, who waladuha, her child. Meaning if the woman, if there was no liquid, if there was no discharge on her part, if there was nothing on her part, then why would the child resemble the mother? Meaning there is some madda, some liquid that comes from the father and something from the mother and both of them combined. That is how the child is born. And this is the reason why the child resembles the father as well as the mother. What do we see in this hadith? That Um Salama, she was amazed at the type of the question that was asked and uh, the answer that was given. And because of that, she was embarrassed and she covered up her face. But we see that there's no shyness when it comes to certain matters of the deen. You see, when it comes to ghusl, when it comes to wudu, when it comes to matters of purity or impurity, are they necessary to know about? Of course. I mean, it means either your salah will be accepted or it will not be accepted. It means either you're doing something righteous or you're disobeying Allah. So this is something very serious. So this is not just only a serious matter, but it's also an urgent matter. Meaning you can't wait to find out about it. I mean, if a woman has to take a bath, can she wait until the next day to find out? No, she has to know urgently. So if a person has access to someone who can answer their question and that person is of the opposite gender and he's also knowledgeable, should a woman be shy of asking such a question? Not at all. She should not feel shy. You know, a person may say that why did the woman not simply ask Um Salama? I mean, if you look at it, first of all, Um Salama did not even know about it, the answer. She was unaware of the problem itself. And besides, she was too shy. So if the woman had approached Um Salama, what kind of response would she have given? So the woman, she needed the answer. She went directly to the Prophet ﷺ and there was no shyness in that. But we see how appropriate she was. That, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ Allah is not shy of the truth. So she clarified her intention, right? That she really genuinely needs to know about this matter. It's regarding al-haq, so she needs to know about it. So there are a number of lessons that we learn from this hadith. First of all, we see that when Allah is not shy of the truth, we should also not be shy of the truth. We learn in the Quran, إِنَّ ذَلِكُمْ كَانَ يُؤْذِ النَّبِي فَيَسْتَحْيِي مِنْكُمْ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ The Messenger is shy of telling you that you should leave, but Allah is not shy. This is why Allah revealed those ayat telling the believers that don't come uninvited, and when you're invited somewhere, eat and leave. Don't stay there for chit-chat. Another lesson that we learn in this hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ, his status is like that of the father of the nation, of the ummah. We know that the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, what are they known as? Ummahatul Mu'mineen. So the Prophet ﷺ was like a father. Any concern, any question, anything that you need clarification on, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to first? Your parents. And whoever is more knowledgeable concerning a particular matter, you ask them. And likewise, if you have a teacher and you ask the question from the teacher, it's perfectly fine. So the women even asking the Prophet ﷺ directly, certain questions, there was nothing wrong in that. Why? Because his level was like that of a father, of a teacher, and in that relationship, there must be no shyness when it comes to learning, when it comes to learning about the haq. And this also shows to us that a teacher, no matter who he or she is, regardless of their age, their gender, their background, no matter who they are, they must be viewed with respect. 
they must always be viewed with respect, which means that when you have certain questions which you may feel awkward of, there's no harm in asking. But the thing is that you have to ask appropriately. You have to ask in a manner that is appropriate. Because sometimes people get offended. Why is a male teacher teaching such a subject? Sometimes people feel uncomfortable. But it's quite possible that he's the only one who is qualified enough or he has all that knowledge to clarify all those issues. So view him with respect. Don't think that he has some, you know, that he likes to talk about these things. No, he is only teaching you the haq. So view the teacher always, always with respect. Another important lesson that we learn in this hadith is that the discharge that results from sexual activity, that requires ghusl. And because we see that the woman, she had the wet dream and as a result, she would be wet. The Prophet ﷺ said, if she is wet, if she finds herself wet, then she should take a bath. So in other words, on the excretion of money, on the excretion of money, is the ghusl required? And that money is the result of feeling pleasure. Let's continue. حدثنا إسماعيل قال حدثني مالك عن عبد الله بن دينار عن عبد الله بن عمر. So Abdullah ibn Umar he narrated that أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم قال he said إن indeed men from الشجري the trees indeed among the trees is what شجرة a tree. So in other words there is a type of a tree which is such that لا يسقط it does not fall. What does not fall? Warakuha, its leaves. So there is such a tree whose leaves don't fall. When do the leaves of a tree generally fall? When the season changes, right? At the time of fall or in winter. But this tree is such that even if the weather changes, still the leaves will not fall. In other words, it is evergreen. Wahiya and it is mathalul Muslim. It is like the Muslim, meaning it resembles the Muslim. حدثوني, tell me, ما هي, what is it? So the Prophet ﷺ asked the Sahaba, that you tell me, what tree is that? So what happened? فَوَقَعَ النَّاسُ So the people fell, meaning they began, you know, they began answering, with what kind of trees? فِي إِن شَجَرِ الْبَادِيَةِ The trees of the desert. Meaning they started thinking about the trees that grow in the desert. So one person said that tree, another person said that tree. Meaning strange, unknown trees that are, you know, far away from the populations that you see in the desert. فَوَقَعَ فِي نَفْسِي So it happened in my heart, meaning I felt, I thought in myself that أَنَّهَا That indeed it is النَّخْلَةِ The date palm. So Ibn Umar said that I thought in my heart that it has to be the date palm. قَالَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ So Abdullah he said, فَاسْتَحْيَيْتُ But I felt shy. I felt shy and I did not give the answer. Why? Why was he shy? Because he was the youngest. And the rest of the people over there were much older than him. And also it happens sometimes that when people are giving different types of answers, even if you think you're right, don't you start doubting yourself? So he felt shy. فَقَالُوا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So the people, they said, O Messenger of Allah, أَخْبِرْنَا بِهَا Please tell us of it. Meaning we can't figure out, you tell us what tree it is. فَقَالَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ The Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم, he said, هِيَ النَّخْلَةِ It is the date palm. قَالَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ So Abdullah Allah ibn Umar, he said, فَحَدَّثْتُ أَبِي So I told my father. I narrated this to my father, meaning Umar رضي الله عنه, بِمَا وَقَعَ فِي نَفْسِي Of what I thought in my heart. فَقَالَ So he said, لَأَن Surely that تَكُونَ You قُلْتَهَا You said it. If you had said it, أَحَبُّ إِلَيَّ It would be more beloved to me. مِنْ ذَانْ أَنْ يَكُونَ لِي كَذَا وَكَذَا That such and such would belong to me. 
أَنْ يَكُونَ لِي It would be for me. What? كَذَا وَكَذَا Such and such, that and that. Meaning, I would love it. I would love the fact that you had given the right answer more than I would love to have the different things of this world. Any amount of wealth, I'm not interested in that. What I would like much more is that you gave the answer over there. So in other words, he was implying that you should not have been hesitant over there, you should not have been shy over there. So these two ahadith, they show to us that a person could be shy in giving the answer and he could be shy in asking about something as well. And we see that of the two, what is more greater is uh, not asking. Okay, Being shy and as a result not asking. Why? Because if a person does not ask, will he ever find out? No. But if a person does not give the answer, can somebody else give the answer? Yes. What is in your mind, only you know about it. The question that you have in your heart, only you you know, want to know about it. But what somebody else wants to know, he is going to keep asking and somebody or the other will give the answer. Or that person, if he is the teacher, then he will eventually give the answer himself. So if you don't ask, that kind of shyness is not good at all. A person must always inquire about matters that are important. And this hadith in particular, it shows us two things. First of all, that it's quite possible that some things are very obvious, but everybody does not get it. I mean, the date palm tree, Medina is an oasis. So the date palm tree was all over Medina. People had orchards of date palms. However, the people started thinking about the trees that grow in the desert. They started thinking about, you know, more far, you know, distant things, more complicated things. Right? Their mind went elsewhere. And something that was literally in front of them, they didn't even see that. They didn't even consider that. So it's quite possible that sometimes something may be right in front of a person, but he doesn't see it. He misses it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that tawfiq to somebody else. And then later on you're like, why didn't I see that? How come I didn't get that? It's with the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So ask Allah for the tawfiq. That may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us very observant very sensitive that we notice things that are important. Sometimes it's possible that a person may appear to be, you know, sad and quiet and other people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, something might be happening. But another person, they take that seriously and they go and ask, is everything okay? Can I help you with something? And that could really have a great impact on the person. Right? We see sometimes the expressions of other people and we completely disregard them. And others, they take the expressions of other people very seriously. You know, in Surah Al-Baqarah, we learn about يَحْسَبُهُمُ الْجَاهِلُ أَغْنِيَا That the ignorant person, he thinks that they are well off, whereas in fact they are not well off, they are in need. تَعْرِفُهُمْ بِسِيمَاهُمْ You will recognize them by their expressions. So many times it happens that some things are in front of you, but you don't even realize. Another important thing that we learn in this hadith is that we learn about the supremacy of the nakhla, of the date palm, above other trees. How great it is compared to other trees that it has so many good qualities, it has so many benefits that are not found in many other trees. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept this tafadul, this difference in not just the people in their knowledge, but also in the rest of the creation as well. Bab manistahya, whoever was shy, fa'amara, so he commanded, he instructed, ghayrahu, someone else other than him, bisu'al with the question. So a person was shy of asking a question. So what did he do? He asked somebody else to ask on his behalf. 
Now, yes, a person should not have shyness when it comes to asking certain questions. But it's quite possible that a person feels shy asking from a particular person. From a particular person. Why? Because of a certain relationship that they have with him or that it will reveal you know, their situation or the embarrassing situation that they're suffering from. So they feel awkward asking that person. But then they don't even have any other choice. They can't even ask somebody else. Okay, so for instance, you want to ask something from your mother, but you feel shy. I mean, if I ask my mother, what will she think about me? What will she say about me? But at the same time, you think that only she can answer that question. So what do you do? You have somebody else ask. So in other words, get the answer, however it is possible for you. But get the answer. Similarly, it happens sometimes that if a person asks a question, then it reveals who he is or his position. He feels shy. Likewise, for instance, if there is a male teacher, then a woman feels shy asking about a particular question because it's possible that he knows her, right? So she feels hesitant at that point. So what should she do? She needs the answer. So she should adopt some other way in asking the question. Then alhamdulillah, these days it is not difficult to ask questions anonymously, really. You know, make a fake email account and just send a question. That's all you have to do. It's not that difficult at all. Likewise, you could send a question in writing. And the teacher, they can just read the question and give the answer. So in other words, whatever it takes, ask. Whatever method you can adopt, ask. But please, please, please get the answer. Because it's important. حدثنا مسدد قال حدثنا عبد الله بن داود عن الأعمش عن مندر الثوري عن محمد بن الحنفية عن علي So Ali رضي الله عنه he said قال he said كنت I was رجلا أمان مذاء مذاء from مذي meaning the one who has a lot of مذي what is مذي? discharge so I used to have excessive discharge فأمرت so I commanded I asked المقداد Miqdad, one of the companions, and that yes, Alan Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he should ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, fasa'alahu, so he asked him on my behalf, faqala, and then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, fihi wudu, with regards to that, what does he have to do? Only wudu and not ghusl. In Sunan Abi Dawood, another version of the same hadith, we learned that Ali radiallahu anhu said that because of that madi, he would bathe, he would take a ghusl every time, and he was taking about excessively to the point that it was affecting him physically. Imagine it was very exhausting, very tiring for him. So he was in a lot of hardship and he wanted to know if ghusl was necessary or if wudu would suffice. But he was shy of asking the Prophet ﷺ, why do you think he would be shy? Asking about this question. Because he was his son-in-law. He was the husband of his daughter. I mean, it's a sensitive relationship. And obviously a man would want that his father-in-law would, you know, should always consider him as a good person. So he felt hesitant, he felt shy. And it also reveals, in a way, an ayb of a person. It's not something that, you know, people talk about openly. It's a very private matter. So he did not want to reveal that. So this is why he asked Miqdad to ask the question on his behalf. The answer that the Prophet ﷺ gave, that you only have to do wudu, no ghusl is required. Now, here we learn about madi, and in the previous, the hadith that we learned before, the hadith of Umm Salama, we learn about money. Remember that there are three types of discharge. I'm sure you've studied this, but it's perhaps been a while, and some of you may be new to this. So it's important to know about this because it's a matter of ghusl, wudu, or no wudu. Okay? So this is something that is very important for us. So even if you know about this, just take this as a review. So there are three types of discharge that a man and woman may emit from their private parts, and the rulings concerning each one of them is different. 
The first type of discharge is money. Okay, money. And money has many characteristics. One of them is that it is thin. It's like a thin liquid. And it's also yellow. And the Prophet ﷺ said that the water of the man is thick and white. And the water of the woman is thin and yellow. Secondly, this money, this discharge also has a smell to it. It also has a smell to it. And thirdly, this discharge, it comes out of the body as a result of pleasure, as a result of sexual pleasure. And upon its excretion, the desire ceases immediately. In other words, it is the result of an orgasm, and after that, it does not continue. Money is tahir, it is clean, and what's the evidence of that? That Aisha anha, she says that she would scrape it off of the clothes of the Prophet wasallam, and you know the stain would still be there. So it shows that it's not necessary to wash it off. If it's on the bed or on the clothes of a person, then the clothes or the bed, the sheets, they do not become unclean. No, it is tahir. It is not essential even to wash it off from one's clothes. However, a person has to do ghusl, Upon its excretion Once it's emitted Ghusl becomes wajib In other words A person is in the state of janaba He has to take the ghusl To become clean And this may happen When a person is awake This may happen Even at the time of You know When a person is asleep It could be the result of intercourse It could be the result of a dream It could be the result of Sexual activity As The main thing is That it is The result of Pleasure It is the result of Sexual enjoyment And after that The pleasure ceases the second type of discharge is madhi, which is mentioned in this hadith. And madhi, it is white and thin, and it is emitted when feeling desire. Okay? It is emitted when feeling desire. And also remember that it is not it is not necessarily accompanied with pleasure, in the sense that a person may be thinking, a person may be feeling, a person may be experiencing something. However, he doesn't reach the height of pleasure. Okay? This is different from money. Money is... From orgasm, this is not from orgasm. And for madhi, the desire does not cease when it is emitted. It's slightly different from it. And remember that madhi is najis. Money is not najis, but madhi is. And it must be washed off if it gets onto the body. And as for clothes, if it falls on the clothes of a person, then it's sufficient to, to sprinkle water over it. Meaning it's not necessary that a person has to wash the clothes, but he may just sprinkle water over it. And the emission of madhi also uh, nullifies wudu, but it does not require a ghusl. So if you see over here, Ali radiallahu anhu, what was he told? Just to do wudu. No ghusl was required of him. No ghusl was required, but he did have to do wudu. And also remember that even if a person has a lot of madhi, meaning person feels that, you know, that their desires to do you know, rise up every now and then and they do feel something coming out. So even if it happens a lot, still a person has to do wudu. Because look at the word madha. What does madha mean? Excessively, a lot. So even if it happens a lot, then still a person has to do wudu. And it's not necessary that this is a result of some illness. No. Nor is it something wrong. It's something natural. It may happen to a person. And uh, a person should be aware as to what he should do with it. And also remember that the ruling of madhi is between money and urine. The ruling of madhi is between money and urine. With regards to urine, what do we learn? That if it falls in the clothes, what do you have to do? You have to wash. And if it's on the body, again you have to wash. 
Correct? But money, what do we learn about it? That you don't have to wash the clothes, but you do have to wash the body. And we see that when it comes to madhi, madhi, body you have to wash, but the clothes you can just, you can just sprinkle water over it. So it's somewhere between money and urine. The third type of discharge is the regular or, you know, the discharge that comes from the uterus. It's only specific to women and, uh, a woman may not even notice it, and women vary with regards to its amount. Some women, they have it a lot. Some women, they have it very, they hardly have it. But remember that it is tahir. In other words, the difference between madhi and the discharge that women have is that madhi is as a result of, you know, some feelings. Okay? But this other discharge that women have, a woman has no control over it. It doesn't result from feelings. No. It doesn't result from anything. It's just natural. Okay? It happens. And it is tahir, which means that the clothes don't need to be washed off. A woman does not have to wash herself, and she does not have to do wudu or ghusl. The one that flows without any pleasure, for that no wudu is required, no ghusl is required, no washing is required. Mani and madhi are both for men and women, I mean both have it. But the third discharge, it's only for women. Bab dhikril ilmi. Dhikril ilm, mentioning Ilm, talking about ilm, wal futya and also futya meaning giving fatwa. Where fil masjid in the masjid? Is it okay to talk about knowledge, something beneficial, to give fatwa, to ask fatwa, to give fatwa in the masjid? Yes, it is perfectly fine. A person may ask a question and a person may also give the answer. A person may have a knowledgeable discussion as well in the masjid. The thing is that it is only natural that when people are together, they will talk with one another. Isn't it so? It's only natural that people will converse. Many times you see that in the masjid, people are praying together, and as soon as the salah is done, everybody starts talking to one another. Right? And it's uh, interesting, the kind of things that people talk about. You don't want to listen to them, but uh, you're sitting right next to them, or sitting in front of them, or behind them, and uh, people talk about all sorts of things. You know, when they see their friends, or when they see their, you know, old friends that they haven't met since quite some time. So people talk about all sorts of things, in the masjid. It's only natural to do that. However, we see that a person should not just talk about, you know, his or her car or their children or their health or, you know, such worldly things. But a person should also, may also talk about beneficial things, about matters concerning ilm. Because if the masjid is a place of what? Worship. And it's a place of recitation of the Quran. It's a place for, you know, remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So at the place where you're praying, whatever you talk about should also be useful, beneficial, so that whatever you're talking about, others don't get distracted by it. Just recently I was praying in the masjid and after my salah I was sitting and doing my dhikr and these women, they were talking about their doctors and you know where one doctor is, where the other doctor is. And as much as I was trying not to pay attention to their conversation, constantly my mind kept going there. So it distracted me. I felt as though I was eavesdropping. You know, I felt uncomfortable listening to that conversation because it seemed somewhat private. I mean, you don't discuss about your health issues and your doctors and your due dates, you know, in public. So whenever we talk in the masjid, make sure that you talk about important things, necessary things in a careful manner. And we see over here, dhikr al-ilm, wal-futya, ilm, fatwa, you know, discussing relevant things, important things, so that even if somebody does listen to you, they learn something interesting, they learn something beneficial, not hearsay, not things that people are, you know, passing around rumors, no, Important, necessary things. And the question may be asked in a manner that only the one who is being questioned 
hears and also other people may hear. So in other words, the question may be asked in a very low voice and it may also be asked in a loud voice. It may be asked in a private conversation and it may be asked in a group of people as well. There's no harm in that as long as other people are not disturbed. We should always be considerate of other people if they're you know, praying salah, reciting the Qur'an or talking to one another. So we should not do anything that would cause them to be disturbed. And it's only normal that when this will happen, voices will be raised. So this is the main issue. Can you raise your voice in the masjid for the purpose of ilm, for the purpose of asking fatwa, for the purpose of giving the answer to a fatwa? Yes. Voices may be raised for that purpose. It doesn't mean that people start yelling at each other. No. But a person may raise his voice or her voice for this purpose. Because some scholars, they said that it is not allowed to raise your voice in the masjid. Because whenever something like this happened, it was discouraged at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, at the time of the companion. So you can't ask, you know, fatwas and such things in the masjid. But Imam Bukhari is proving that no, this is perfectly fine. Because masajid are places of worship and they're also places for ta'aleem. حدثني قتيبة بن سعيد قال حدثنا الليث بن سعد قال حدثنا نافع مولى عبد الله بن عمر ابن الخطاب عن عبد الله بن عمر أن رجلا that indeed a man قام he stood where did he stand في المسجد in the masjid فقال and then he said يا رسول الله O messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم من أين من from أين where meaning at which place at what point Ta'muruna, do you instruct us, do you command us, an that nuhilla? We do tahlil, ihlal. And what does that mean? To enter the state of ihram. So at which point, at which place should we wear our ihram? And basically, ihlal is rafa'u sawt bitalbiyah, to raise one's voice with the talbiyah. Meaning to say loudly, labbayka Allahumma labbayk, labbayka umrah, okay, or labbayka Allahumma labbayk. So, it is to raise one's voice with the talbiyah. When do you say that? When do you do that? At the time when you put on your ihram. Isn't it so? When you put on your ihram, at that time you say out loudly the talbiyah. And this is why it's called, because remember halala, what does it mean to raise one's voice? That when a child is born and he cries, that also is called halala. Okay, and from this is the word hilal, the crescent. Why? Because when the people cite the crescent, that means the beginning of the new month. So as a result, they would raise their voices. So likewise, when a person puts on the ihram, he raises his voice with the talbiyah. So the man asked, where do you instruct us that we should put on the ihram? At which place? فَقَالَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he responded, that يُهِلُّ أَهْلُ الْمَدِينَةِ The people of Medina, they should put on their ihram. Where? مِنْ ذِلْحُلَيْفَ So at ذُلْحُلَيْفَ, when they reach there, the people of Medina should put on their ihram. Has anyone done that? At Dhul Hulayfa. So you do that when you're going from Medina to Mecca for Umrah, you stop at Dhul Hulayfa and you put on your ihram over there. So you hillu ahlul Madinati min Dhul Hulayfa, wa you hillu ahlul Shami. And the people of Sham, meaning Sham, as in Syria, when they come towards Mecca in order to perform Umrah or Hajj, where should they put on their ihram? Min al Juhfa. At this place. Wa you hillu ahlul Najdin min Qarnin. And the people of Najd, they should put on their ihram at the point of Qarn. All of these places are basically, you know, at a certain distance away from Makkah, but obviously they are in different directions. So depending on which direction somebody is coming from, that is where they would put on their ihram. وَقَالَ ibn Umar And Ibn Umar رضي الله عنه, 
he is the one who narrated this hadith. So after narrating this hadith, he also added that وَيَزْعُمُونَ And they say, who? Some other companions. They say that أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَ That the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم, he also said at this point that وَيُهِلُّ أَهْلُ الْيَمَنِ مِنْ يَلَمْلَمْ That the people of Yemen, when they come for Umrah, they should put on their ihram at the point of Yalamlam. Okay, Yalamlam is a name of a place. وَكَانَ ابْنُ عُمَرْ يَقُولْ And Ibn Umar he used to say لَمْ أَفْقَهْ هَذِهِ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ I did not understand this from the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم meaning I did not learn this from him. So because I did not learn this from him this is why I'm not going to narrate it to you as the hadith of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. Okay, as a command, as an instruction that is coming from him. Because I did not learn this directly from him. However, I've heard that some other companions, they say that the people of Yemen should also put on their ihram at Yalamla. What does it show about Ibn Umar? How careful he was when he narrated the hadith. He only narrated what he was sure of, what he understood, what he heard. And if there was something else that the companions said, that they had heard something or they thought that the Prophet ﷺ said something, he would only narrate it as the statement of the companions is not, and not the statement of the Prophet ﷺ. So this hadith, it tells us about the obligation of putting on the ihram from the mentioned mawaqit, that what's the miqat, those that are mentioned in the hadith. And depending on which direction a person is coming from, he has to put on the ihram when he reaches these points. Bab man ajab as-sa'ila, the one who responded, who gave the answer to who? As-sa'il, the questioner. The one who gives the answer to the one who is asking. How does he give the answer? بِأَكْثَرَ With more. مِمَّا than what? سَأَلَهُ He asked him. What does this bab mean? What does this chapter heading mean? That the one who gives the answer to the sa'il, what kind of an answer? More than what he asked about. So in other words, he doesn't just give the answer, but he also adds something else. He tells him some extra information that the person did not inquire about. Why does he give him that extra information? To show that he knows a lot? No. So that it can help him understand better. Because he feels the need to understand that as well. So although the person did not ask about it, he mentions it anyway. Because he knows that it is very important to know about that matter. Sometimes it happens. That, you know, people don't ask questions as they should ask. Meaning questions are not clear or questions are incomplete or a person is only asking about a certain thing and, you know, there are many other things that they should know about but they don't think about it. It could be due to lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, whatever it may be. So if you know and you think that the person should know, then you tell them. So for example, just recently somebody was telling me about how the sheikh, whenever he's asked by young kids, is music haram? He doesn't say, oh yeah, it's haram, you shouldn't listen to it. He asks them, tell me, are the lyrics halal? Are the lyrics halal? And they say, not always. Okay, is the video halal? You know, what's, whatever, ha- whatever is happening in the video that you see, is that halal? They say, not exactly. So I said, okay, you judge yourself. So the person is just asking about the instruments, okay, the music parts. But you make them understand by giving them additional information that look, the lyrics are not okay. We know whatever is happening, that is not okay. So how can you think that the sound will be okay? I mean, that's something very insignificant if you think of the rest of it, right? If you look at the rest of it, the music is just one part of it. And it's not as bad as the lyrics and as what's happening. 
So giving additional information that is very beneficial. حدثنا آدم قال حدثنا ابن أبي ذئب عن نافع عن ابن عمر. Notice the chain. Notice the chain. How short is it? حدثنا آدم قال حدثنا ابن أبي ذئب عن نافع عن ابن عمر. Four only. That's it. It's the golden chain, right? عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. So we see that towards the end of كتاب العلم, Imam Bukhari is, you know, he's showing us about علم that how great it can be and, and Subhanallah the kind of knowledge that he had, that he had the golden chain. Right? I mean, he had, you know, that chain in, in which was the golden chain as well. وعن الزهري and also from زهري. زهري also narrated this. عن سالم عن ابن عمر. So two chains linking up to ابن عمر. عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم from the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم أن رجلا that indeed a man سأله he asked him that a man asked the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم ما يلبس what he should wear who should wear المحرم the person who is in إحرام so the person who is in إحرام what should he wear فقال so the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he responded لا يلبس he should not wear القميص the shirt ولا العمامة and nor the عمامة ولا السراويل and nor the سراويل ولا البرنس nor the برنس ولا and nor ثوبا a garment مسه it has touched it what has touched it الورس ورس has touched it أو الزعفران or زعفران so nor a garment that has been colored or touched by ورس or زعفران فَإِلَّمْ يَجِدْ So if he does not find a na'lain, two sandals, فَلْيَلْبَسْ Then he should wear الخفين, two socks. وَلْيَقْطَعْهُمَا And he should cut them too, حَتَّى until يَكُونَا Both the socks are تَحْتَ الْكَعْبَيْنِ Under the ankles. The man just asked the Prophet ﷺ, What should the muhrim wear? What clothes should he wear? So the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't tell him, okay, just wear two pieces of cloth that are plain. No. He told him, he should not wear this and this and this and this. And with regards to the feet, you have to wear this. And if you cannot find this, then do this instead. So he gave him a very, very detailed answer. So that the person does not have any confusion left at all. He told him that a person in ihram may not wear a qamis. What is a qamis? Qamis is libasul badan. It's the garment that a person wears on his body. It could be covering part of the body or the entire body. So for example, it could be a shirt that comes up to the hip or lower, or it could be such that it comes up to the feet. Okay? Comes down to the feet or a little above that. Okay? Especially for the men. So what is qamis? The shirt or the dress. Libasul badan. Secondly, a person may not wear imama. What is imama? The turban. Libasul ras. What is worn on the head. And this shows that men may not cover their heads with anything. Obviously a woman has to cover her head, not with an imama, but obviously it's understood. Thirdly, sarawil. No sarawil as well in ihram. What are sarawil? Trousers. What is worn? Asfal badan. Meaning on the lower part of the body. So pants or trousers, even that cannot be worn. And also, burnus. Burnus cannot be worn Either. What is a burnus? Burnus is a hood. What is it? A hood. It's basically a long, loose cloak that has a hood attached to it. And it's worn by the people of 
Maghrib. What is Maghrib? Morocco. So the people of Morocco, they used to wear this and we see this today as well. That the kind of, you know, the jilbab or for the women or even the men, the kandura that they wear, they, it has a hood attached to it. So a person cannot even wear such a cloak that has a hood on it, so he covers his head with that. Nor should a person wear a garment that has been touched by wars or za'faran. What is wars? Wars is a plant that was used to make a yellow dye. It's a plant that was used to make a yellow dye. And za'faran, it's known for its lovely color and, its, and also its beautiful fragrance. So in other words, the garment should not be colored, nor should it be perfumed. It should not be colored. And this is about the men. Okay, Don't think it's about you. So it should not be colored and it should not be perfumed either. So this shows that before putting the ihram on, you know, they cannot put bukhur or ud or you know such things on the ihram to make it smell nice. No, you can't do that. And he said that on the feet, what should a person wear? Na'alain. Have we read this word before? Fakhla' na'alaik. Remove your na'alaik, your sandals. Na'alain are sandals which are such that meaning the foot is bare. Basically, you have, you know, something beneath your foot, okay, to protect the feet from below. And on top, you only have a strap just to keep the sandal together, just to keep the sandal on your shoe. So you can say something like slippers, sandals, with, you know, minimum part of the front, of the top of the foot or the side of the foot covered. So a person should wear sandals in ihram. And if that is not possible for a person, he cannot find it, he cannot afford it, then what should he do? He should wear Socks, and obviously these are leather socks. You can't be expected to wear cotton socks when you go for ihram because they will get dirty and you won't be able to wear them for a long time and they would defeat the purpose of wearing shoes. So leather socks. However, what's the condition? That you cut them. You cut them so that the ankles are bare. Okay, They have to be exposed. And this is obviously for the men. Now we see here that the Prophet ﷺ gave a very detailed answer to the men so that there was no misunderstanding, no confusion whatsoever. And this teaches us that the answer does not have to conform to the question that is asked. It's best that, you know, whatever a person is asking, you give that response, you give that answer. But it's not necessary that you limit your answer to the question that is asked. That you only give what the person is asking about. No. If you feel that there is a need, it is necessary, then you may add. You may add something. You may give additional information. And this will only come, this you will only be able to do when you when you understand the question, you realize the need of the person, you read into the question that what does the person need to know. So for example, if there is, you know, a person who is asking about, let's say, or there is a young child and they are asking about, for instance, child abuse. Okay, I mean, it tells that this is something that's bothering them. So as, for example, a teacher, you should be concerned. And you should find out. You know, you should be careful. Likewise, if a person is asking a question concerning a health issue, then again, you should be sensitive towards the needs of the people. Okay, And this will only come with nusr, with well-wishing. The more good you want for the person, the more sensitive you will become towards their questions. You know, many times children, they ask questions, and you know, their questions result from what they're thinking, what's going on in their heads. So as a parent, as an older sibling, as a teacher, as an older sister, if a child asks a question, you know, pay attention to that. 
So for example, if, you know, if you're teaching somebody about tajweed rules or grammar rules and you tell them, you know, this is feral maldi. And they say, what's feral? And you say, it's a verb. And you continue explaining what feral maldi is. They don't even know what feral is. And you're talking about feral maldi. And then you're going to the different types, the different, you know, sigha. So they don't even understand the main thing. So always understand the question, what the question means. But this does not mean that any time a person asks a question, you always give a very detailed answer. No, this was not the habit of the Prophet ﷺ. His usual habit was to keep his speech brief and to the point. However, when he felt that there was more explanation needed, then he would give that. The man asked what he should wear. The Prophet ﷺ told him what he should not wear. So in other words, anything that you can find except for this. Anything that you're able to except for this. When you are teaching, your goal is not just to make sure that whatever you have written in front of you is written in front of the student now. That they've copied all the notes. No. The point is that they should be able to understand. And for that, if there's anything extra that you need to explain, something additional, then go ahead and do that. Because otherwise you cannot achieve the purpose, the objective of teaching. So we've seen this, the beautiful manner of the Prophet ﷺ, his manner of ta'aleem, in that he gave to the people what they needed to know. If you look at this as the conclusion of Kitab al-Ilm, and at the end of Kitab al-Ilm, Imam Bukhari mentions about giving more than what somebody is asking about. A person may feel, you know, when he's reading Kitab al-Ilm, that there are many things that are not that big of a deal. Or that for Kitab al-Ilm, you just need to know about the fadila of ilm, the reward, you know, the basic, basic things. But if you study Kitab al-Ilm, now that you've studied, you see so many points he has mentioned, which apparently seem obvious or to us, they don't seem as important, but he has mentioned every point more than what people want to know. Why? Because he feels that it's necessary for us to know. And also one more thing I want you to notice that towards the end of Kitab al-Ilm, all of the ahadith that he's mentioned, they speak about fiqhi issues, especially tahara, hajj, wudu, ghusl. And the next chapter is, the next kitab is Kitab al-Wudu. That slowly, you know, we're being prepared to understand the more complicated matters of fiqh. That this very important manner that we see in the way of the Prophet ﷺ, that when a person asked about something, he explained everything to him in detail, more than what the person wanted to know. Every detail, not just the clothes, but also what to wear on the head and what to wear on the feet. You know, the whole outfit he explained. Extra information he gave. Why? So that the man is completely clear about what he can wear and what he cannot wear. Likewise, when we're doing anything, you know, even for example, a doctor, when he's prescribing a medicine, you know, if he takes time to explain to the patient or to the parents of the patient that, you know, this is the medicine and this is why you should have it and this is what it's about, this is what it will do and this is the next step. If a doctor gives you medicine like that, you feel much more comfortable taking it. And if you go to a doctor and they say, okay, how can I help you today? What's happening? And you just tell them what the problem is and, and they write a prescription and they give it to you, you're like, what just happened? You can't trust the doctor. You can't trust what they've given. You wonder if they even understood what the problem was. Right? I remember I went to two completely different doctors for something and one doctor was like, so you have any questions? And I'd be like, no. The doctor would come in and go out quickly within literally less than a minute. And the other doctor, they would take like 15 minutes, half an hour sometimes, explaining everything, you know, asking everything, making sure everything was okay. And I understood and I remember they would give leaflets, read it. And if you have any questions, ask. And they would ask, did you read it? 
you have any questions about it? Do you know what this is? Are you comfortable about this? So it's a completely different experience. So even for instance, when we are at this institute and somebody comes and they, you know, and they seem a little lost and they ask you, where is the masjid? Don't just direct them to where the masjid is. Ask them, so what brings you here today? Maybe they're here to find their child, to meet the teacher or to, you know, to see the bookstore or something. So with your, you know, proactiveness, with your paying attention to them, and being interested in them, you will be able to benefit them in a much better way. You know, there's some people who just take orders and they do it. Exactly as they were told. Nothing else. And there are other people who are proactive from before. And whatever they are given to do, they take an extra step. They do ihsan. So what is required of us is ihsan. You know, some people study for the sake of the test. But other people study for the sake of studying. In order to know more. In order to increase in their knowledge. And there's a difference. A huge difference. The person who studies for the test, he forgets right after the test. And the person who studies seriously, then he retains that knowledge and he benefits from it. So it's a complete difference of attitudes. The differences of being interested and not being interested. Being selfish or being caring. Okay, inshallah, we'll conclude over here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.